you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. You may wonder, how much stock does God actually put into my relationships with others when we come before Him? The answer to that question is very clear throughout Scripture, and especially in the text that we'll be discussing this morning, where the relationship with God is compared to and connected to the relationship between a husband and a wife. After clearly spelling out the implications to the priest of not taking his warnings to heart, God gets even more direct in outright calling them out for breaking covenant. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, we read this, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? You see, have we not all one Father is not speaking to the universal fatherhood of God. It's specifically speaking to a father who made a covenant with the nation of Israel and its patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There ought to be a difference in the relationship with others when God is the bind that holds us together, especially in this context of a nation whose God loved them and longed for them to serve him. When he says the phrase here, why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers, one commentator points this out. It's important to note how Malachi has formulated his question. He deliberately uses the word bara to create because he wants to stress the exceptional character of Israel's origin as God's covenant people. At the same time, he endorses the intimate relationship between the members of that people by stressing the oneness of God who created them. Against the background of the undeniable fact that God is Israel's father and creator, they have one origin and therefore are intimately related to one another. It is inconceivable that the members of this people should break the faith among themselves. Why then are we faithless to one another? Why do we not honor the exceptional and spiritual unity which binds us together as members of God's covenant people? That's essentially what Malachi is going after here when he asks these questions. We have God who has called us as a nation. Why are we not faithful to him? Why are we not faithful to one another? Why are we breaking our covenant before him and ourselves? You see, if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have something greater than these people do. You have the Lord Jesus Christ, as the writer of Hebrews points out. Jesus is greater and better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron and the priesthood. He's better than all of these things. Jesus gave you more than anything this world could offer. He gave you himself. The question is, why are we so busy pursuing other things? The material things in our lives. Why is it the stuff that matters more than he does? Why is it that comfort matters to more of us than he does? The best rest you can find is in him. And that rest ultimately will be on the other side of eternity. When you and I get to rest in his kingdom. You see, so many of us find relationships to be a higher priority on this earth than our relationship with him. 
And unfortunately, what ends up happening is relationships, as they many times do, disappoint, don't they? They have flaws because they're not perfect. None of us are. None of us has anything that we can offer someone else that God does not beat us big time in spades. The reality is it's easy to sing songs like, you are my all in all. But do we mean what we say? Do we mean that God is our all in all? That he is everything that we would want in this life? Why are we surprised that the money disappears from our bank accounts as quickly as it does? I don't know why we're stunned by it. That's part of how it works in this life, doesn't it? You have bills to pay, things to do, places to go, people to see. Why are we living for the here and now so much? Why are we surprised that the comfort that we would like to see on this earth isn't what we expected? Why are we surprised that if I just work harder, I can then just relax, it'll all go away, and it doesn't work that way? You ever been one of those people that kind of pursues a goal in life, and you're saying, if I just get this, I'll then relax. I'll then have it a whole lot easier. And you get to that, right? You finally attain whatever it is. Right for me, one of the big things that I really pursued when I was younger, I can't wait to get a house. Couldn't wait to get a house, right? Now I have a house. It wasn't everything you'd ever want, but I'm truly grateful for what God's given us. Why? Because the satisfaction should be ultimately in him, not in the stuff that he's given us. It's important for us as parents, myself included on this, to remind our children that the things that we have on this earth are truly a blessing from God himself. God is a good father who gives us good gifts, which is one of the reasons why parents should never be stingy with their children, ever. It's one thing when they're an adult and they're responsible for their own decisions and their own choices, but parents, if you have children, you ought to be an example of your heavenly father. You ought to be an example of a father who loves and cherishes that relationship with their children. You thought the comfort would be found apart from rest that Christ will offer us one day. It won't, believer. You're still surprised by the fact that people fail you? Are you still surprised by that? Here's the true statement. People will fail you, have failed you, and will continue to fail you. That's just how we are. Don't put someone on the pedestal of idol in your life. They'll fail you every time. Come back to Christ. Find in him what you and I are looking for. You see, as we move through this text in Malachi verses 11 and 12, here's what he says next. Judah has dealt treacherously. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. You see, what happened here was, essentially, they married a follower of God and yet turned their back on them and went after strange idols and other men and women. Particularly, the priests are in mention here, so they went after strange women, women that pulled their hearts away from God. And essentially, the idea of dealing treacherously is to deal deceitfully, to act as a traitor, to betray. What these priests had done is they betrayed their covenant before God 
and their spouse. What is referred to here is a cover-up, essentially. These priests pretended that God was okay with what they had done. There's nothing further from the truth. In fact, Webster's defines it like this when we're talking about treacherously or traitor, violating allegiance or faith pledged, faithless, traitorous to the state or sovereign, deceitful in private life, betraying a trust. A man may be treacherous to his country or treacherous to his friend by violating his engagements or his faith pledged. You see, the truth is, who you marry does matter. As this text clearly spells out. Because these idolatrous women were married to the leaders of the nation and pulled their hearts away from God. God's institution of marriage, especially in the, nation, in the context of the nation of Israel, was, mari- marred, uh, was marked by holiness. They were to marry those that would follow their God. They were not to break their vows to God by marrying those that opposed God. You see, God is the creator and designer of marriage. When we turn it into something other than what he has created, we profane it. If you look throughout the scriptures, you see the clear results of the lack of leadership in the home and the man succumbing to the wife's desires that pulled him away from God and service to him. We're going to look at just a few of these examples. Back in Numbers 25, we read the following. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. You see, Baal was a fertility god that these pagans, the Moabites, worshipped. And here we read that the nation of Israel was seduced by the practice of idolatry, and they joined them. Now I want you to notice something in this text. Notice the invitation. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. Believer, if you think that the world is not trying to invite you to their practices, you are deceived. There are too many believers that think the world does not phase them anymore. They're in Christ. None of that matters. And the truth is the world's always inviting you and me every day to join them. The question is, how are you responding? How am I responding? Do you oppose or do you join? It's incredible that the nation of Israel was invited and so readily accepted the invitation to join in the pagan practices. You see, we read this stuff as Christians. We're like, I can't believe they do something like that. Ask yourself this question. If, if, if God was going to ask you to be honest with yourself, how was this last year lived in what you've practiced that probably he would not approve of? Be honest with yourself. How many things have we done that really has been a partnership with darkness and we've tried to pass off as nothing major in our lives? What's truly sad about the state of the church today is that we try so hard to reach the world by joining them 
and thinking that it will somehow make them want Christ. Listen, believer, there are certain things God has never given you another option on, and one of them is worship. If there's one area that's truly been destroyed and decimated in our country is the area of worship. Worship has been demolished in the American church today. It's come as you are, leave as you came, who cares? Which is one of the reasons why everything is so casual. There's no reverence for God anywhere to be found in the American church. Yes, there are faithful churches, but overall, the church in America is starving for truth. Because all we've done is adjusted to the people that are coming, our seeker-sensitive movements. We want people to feel comfortable in the church. The church was never meant to be something that you just feel comfortable with. Worship was never something that you were meant to be comfortable with. In fact, if you look throughout all of Scripture, nowhere do you find worship as something that's just supposed to be comfortable. There was a seriousness to it that's lost today. Worship in American culture is misdefined compared to what Scripture calls it. Worship today is giving God anything I want, however I please, as long as I think he's happy with it. Instead of us inviting people in the world to church, into our homes, to hear the gospel, we allow them to influence us in their practice. Which is why the role of headship is so messed up in the church today. Feminism has infiltrated the church, and the Apostle Paul, by the way, it's true, is seen as a male chauvinist in declaring that men are to lead in their homes. You think I'm lying, I'm not. You can find a lot of female authors today in the Christian circles that are promoting this view. You see, we see this lack of leadership in the home also in the life of King Ahab as well. In 1 Kings chapter 16, we're going to read verses 29 through 34. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hail of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segev. He set up his gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. You see, the truth is, for Ahab, it didn't matter what God said about marriage. It didn't matter what God said about who he was to marry. He married Jezebel as though it was a trivial thing. By the way, Jezebel's probably a name most of us wouldn't, you know, name our daughters. Even the world knows better than to name their child Jezebel. His grievous sin of idolatry was so gruesome 
that he more than likely sacrificed his children as an offering to this pagan god. As one commentator noted, the foundation sacrifice revealed by modern archaeology is probably what was involved. The children named were probably infants, dead or alive, placed in jars and inserted into the masonry, propitiating the gods and warding off evil. Oh, we don't have idol worship today, we just call it abortion. We kill our children at the altar of convenience. Notice what is said back in Malachi 2, verse 12. This is God's response to what they had done in polluting the marriages that God had established. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. You see, here's the truth, church. There's a curse that's pronounced on the priest who married these pagan wives, who turned their hearts away from God. And that curse affected their children. As a side note, in case you're wondering, because people always have questions when these things are mentioned, God is not against marriages from other ethnic backgrounds. He is against marriages that violate the covenant a follower of his has with him. To the point on Moabites that we mentioned earlier, Ruth was a woman from Moab who made the God of Israel her God and then eventually ends up marrying Boaz who is now also in the line of Christ. You see, back in this text, we see that God mentions the hard truth regarding marriages Marriages that had been broken apart and severed with godly women and their joining with pagans. In Malachi 2, 13 through 17, here's what it says. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore. Nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says, that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? God is essentially saying here that he's not paying attention. He's not paying attention to what they're offering him. It's getting to the point where they're emotionally being stirred, hoping that that will somehow have a good response from God. God's not paying attention. 
They aren't dealing correctly with those that they've married. This is directly affecting their worship. Believer, your marriage affects your worship. It really does. Some went even as far as divorcing godly women to marry pagan women. Do you imagine the heartbreak in that situation? A woman who loves God has been abandoned for a pagan? The covenant of marriage is a sacred covenant before God. Which is why when it is broken, God refuses to accept their sacrifices. Oh, there are other things that they do, did that was polluting what they offered before God. But this is one specifically that's mentioned here as well. These priests were unfaithful to their wives and went after pagan idols while leaving behind a broken home. I need you to picture that. There are children involved in this. Let's not forget that. God wanted these priests to raise a godly offspring, which is what is mentioned here. But they were raising little pagans instead because they left their God-honoring wives to serve other gods and their prostitutes. Believer, don't ever date someone if you're single with the goal of converting them to become a follower of Christ. You'll be the one compromising. Oh, are there exceptions to the rule? Yes, and you and I are probably not that. That's only God's grace that overcomes our rebellion in those areas. You see, what these men did was outright violence before God. When they divorced their wives to marry a pagan... Verse 16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Not a topic anybody likes to discuss much in the church today. Divorce causes serious damage to a home. It affects Usually, the last, they last to the next generation, the effects from that. There's always strife and tension when the children grow up with different parents. And those parents remarry. What's even worse is when parents refuse to see the hurt that they've caused, as these priests did. Are there biblical grounds for divorce? Yes, there are. Should this be exercised as it is in Christian circles? No. We have those in the church that have been divorced. It's not something that they were in any way proud of. They know the pain. It's, they know the pain that it's caused not just for them, but for those around them. It's true. It's hard. But that's what makes God's grace so amazing that even when we've failed, there's restoration at the other end. Because the truth is, every single one of us have failed God. 
And it's easy for us to point fingers at people that have failed in different areas, and we don't. All of us at times have broken covenant with God. But as God always says to us, we can come back home. And when we do turn to go back home, God runs to greet us. You see, God hates divorce. He is opposed to it due to the covenant relationship. Which is why essentially one of the main biblical reasons for divorce is sexual immorality. See, God was disgusted by their coming to him and promoting evil as good as many in the church do today. So many are just waiting, just like these priests were, for God to actually do something about the evil things that they've been doing. It's one of the reasons why that question is asked. Where's the God of justice? You have people openly taunting God in churches today. God hasn't struck me yet. He's fine with what I'm doing. Believer, God will execute justice So when you ask, as they do, where is the God of justice, know that he will in due time deliver. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. You see, then the question becomes for those of us that are reading this, who are married, what does God expect from us? Right? It's not enough for us to go, here's what they did. Here's what was all the things that they've done that were wrong. Let's bring it in and and, and make this practical to us. What does God expect from us? Husbands and men are to have certain qualities to them. Number one, we're only going to look at a few today. Number one, sacrificial. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. As a follower of Jesus... If a husband's to be a leader in his home, he must love like Jesus, sacrificially. There are things that ought to be given up for the good of the wife. What this does not mean is that a man becomes passive and does whatever his wife pleases in sacrificing on her behalf, whatever her, his wife wants, his wife wants. Jesus loves his bride, the church, but he does not approach her by giving up his authority. Men, if you're trying to get your cue from Jesus, you might want to pay attention to how he leads the church. And don't take cues from other men that aren't leading in certain areas. Take your cue from Christ. Use him as an example. That's who you are to emulate. It's easy to go, I'm doing better than this man over here or that man over there. It's hard when you look in the face of Christ and go, I'm not leading like he does.
Christ loves the church, but he does not give up his authority as head. And this is exactly the place that many Christian men have completely misapplied this text. All her wants and desires I should be okay with, even if it's destroying both her and me. That is not biblical sacrifice. You are to lead with Christ as your head. A man's allegiance is to Christ first, then to his wife. If it's to his wife first, then there will be times that those will not agree and a fight will ensue. And it happens in many Christian homes. The problem with this is that men give in more easily to a wife that emotionally manipulates and badgers them and is disrespectful, hoping that somehow that will win back his leadership. Unfortunately, that never works and never will. In being loyal to Christ, there will be times that some things must be dealt with and not stuffed under the rug in our Christian homes. Believer, the goal as it is in this text is sanctification. As with Christ and his church. If a man's leadership is not working against his wife's sanctification, then it is not aligned with Christ. If it's working against what God's called him to do in leading his family according to the dictates of Scripture, then he's going against her sanctification. You see, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord is a statement that Joshua said as a patriarch of his home. Throw the toxic masculinity garbage out that you've bought into. He was right in saying what he said. He didn't need to run it by everybody before he could say that. It was God-honoring. You see, men are to lead, period. Forget the distractions of other men and how they operate aligned with the Word of God. That is your model. Jesus is the one you follow and His leadership. That means at times, yes, you need to be kind and gentle and understanding that sometimes others will not see the things the way that you do as a husband and a father in the home. But your goal is to align to Christ, not to everyone else's needs and wants that may be opposed to what God would want. These are difficult things to do. Number two, another quality that a man should have is to be connected. Genesis 2.24, Mark 10.5-9, and Ephesians 5.31-32. and 32. Let's read these. Genesis 2.21-24. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In Mark 10, 5 through 9, Jesus adds to this conversation. He says, and Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. It's regarding divorce. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And then we jump back into Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 32. Paul says this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Men, husbands, there needs to be a connection that is made to your wife. There's a connection of two becoming one. Leaving mom and dad is an important part of all of this. Your relationship with your spouse should be closer than your relationship with your parents. And if you're married and you're closer to your mom and dad, you are not doing what Scripture says. Connection is established when mom and dad are left and are not involved in the marriage itself. Leaving and cleaving is a biblical concept that needs to be practiced in the church today. Sadly, many still go back to mom and dad for advice and wonder why there's no trust and connection in their marriage. You see, the truth is, there's a reason why other godly men and women are so important, believer. Because parents tend to have a bias in an argument when their child's involved. Especially if it's between their child and a son or daughter-in-law. God's word has very practical implications in how we do things. And it's very clear. All three of those texts talk about the fact that it's important for us to join together and separate from mom and dad. You see, the truth is it's even more devastating in homes that are broken, where the husband is not leading because he's afraid of what her family's going to say if he exercises authority. There are some men in the church that don't leave their home simply because they're afraid of what the in-laws are going to say. Men, that's not your, that's not your goal, is to please the in-laws. Your goal is to please God. There will be times that you're going to upset your in-laws in the decisions that you make. There are going to be times that you upset your parents in the decisions that you make. And sometimes they'll be the right decision before God. See, the truth is we all know that there are marriages where there are domineering men. And I'm not speaking to that. But the opposite is just as devastating, where the man is passive and is afraid to lead spiritually. You see, what happens at times in a, is a man that's over-domineering and overcompensates. when he realizes he's done too much over here, he goes the other extreme, becomes a passive man who does not lead. He completely gives up all authority and goes, honey, what do you want? It was too tough on everybody, I went too far over here, so now I'm going to just completely give up my authority. That's not right. He becomes passive and apologizes for everything. That is not the way to lead. As Doug Wilson says, 
A woman knows that a man who cannot stand up to her is going to have difficulty standing up for her. The picture of connection is directly connected to the gospel and our allegiance to Christ, who has redeemed his church, his bride. He has purchased the church with his own blood and desires connection with his bride. It's amazing how much we care about what others think that God's word says instead of reading it for ourselves personally. We would rather someone tell us how to do certain things in the Bible instead of reading the Bible to see what it says. We prefer the interpretation over the unfiltered text. We prefer books on the Bible instead of the Bible. You see, these are just two qualities that husbands and men are to have. We have way more that we could cover in the Bible. We're only going to cover those two. So what about Christian women, ladies, wives? They're encouraged by the Apostle Paul to have certain qualities about them as well. Number one, reverent. Titus 2, 3 through 5. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. When you and I think of the word reverent, the word that should come to mind is respect. The idea here is not a gossip, not given to much wine, clear in the way that they think, which is interesting that it's mentioned here. And teaching, these older women should teach younger women to be a good example in the home. You see, the truth is, everyone likes to play word games with verses like this. Well, what's implied here is that these things must be taught in the homes. It doesn't come naturally to do well in the home. These are learned behaviors. The question is, if you are an older woman, are you teaching younger women these things or not? What are younger married couples learning from you? Younger women are learning from you in this situation. If you're a younger woman, who are you learning from? Believer, your sources matter. If you're asking someone for advice that has no clue about what they're talking about, don't do that. I don't go to my son and ask him how I should parent. He's not at my stage of life. We are all disciples of someone. And we also disciple others in different ways, even when we don't realize it. Your example in the church is teaching others something. Do you know that? It's teaching others around you certain things. The ultimate is to be a disciple of Jesus. But that also means that we need to be aware of the influences of others in our lives. You see, verse 5 is very controversial today. 
Especially where it says to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. Wow. Wow, Paul. Seriously? It's controversial today because people want to oppose what Scripture clearly says, which means that men are to lead in their homes. It seems to imply that male headship does exist, and it does. And that there ought to be a quality home life. The key is found at the end that is conveniently left out when many argue against what Paul is arguing for. That the word of God may not be blasphemed or dishonored. You see, when we don't have our homes in order, we're not just a bad example to others. We're literally telling people the Bible doesn't matter. When a Christian lives antithetically to what Scripture clearly teaches, they are literally a walking contradiction of what they say they believe. It is dishonoring to God when the home is not run the way that it was designed to by God. Especially in a Christian home where we have Christ as our head and an example of what that looks like. Which is why it's so important for a husband to lead well in the home. And then the wife can truly be that help meet for him, the support for him, as we see in the number two, supportive. Genesis 2, 20 through 22, and Proverbs 31, 10 through 12. Genesis 2, 20 through 22 says this, So Adam gave animal names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then in Proverbs 31, 10 through 12, we read this. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. You see, Adam had the job of naming the animals and tending the garden, which proves that work existed before the curse. It just got a lot harder. Scripture clearly tells us that Adam needed a helper, someone that could be a support for him. God brings Adam, Eve, the woman, who is now his helper, his support. You see, in Proverbs 31 is the virtuous woman and qualities that she possesses. One of the incredible statements is that the heart of her husband safely trusts her so he will have no lack of gain. This wife is her man's biggest fan and support. She's proud of the work he does and is grateful for his sacrifice on the behalf of the family. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. What a beautiful statement. What a statement. I want to read this text in another translation because it really pulls out even more. Proverbs 31, 10 through 12 says, An excellent woman, one who is spiritual, capable, intelligent, and virtuous, who is he who can find her? 
Her value is more precious than jewels, and her worth is far above rubies or pearls. The heart of her husband trusts in her with secure confidence, and he will have no lack of gain. She comforts and encourages and does him only good and not evil all the days of her life. What a beautiful text. One of the areas that truly value in my own marriage is my wife's support. And if you're listening to this and you're a wife, I do want to give you this piece of advice, if I can, from practical living. When we go through hard times, and we all do, knowing that we have a wife that supports us even when it's hard, even when the bills are not what we like to see and it's hard to pay the bills, it means the world to a man. There have been many low points in my life, many low points in ministry that only my wife knows about. Only my wife knows. And to have her support means the world to me as a man. There are times that people have hurt me and I've never said it to them. I've never mentioned it to them. I've gone back and cried. There have been times where I go back to my wife and say, honey, I don't know if I can do this anymore. My wife's support is all I needed that time. It does wonders in a marriage. You see, the truth is, for some ladies, it's hard to respect their husbands and to support them. Because maybe they're not living in accordance to Scripture, especially passages that speak to dwelling in an understanding way with them. Ladies, here's a text to remind you how God would want you to respond when it comes to a man that is not leading in the way God would want. In 1 Peter 3, 1 through 5, in the New Living Translation, it says this, In the same way you wives must accept the authority of your husbands, then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. You see, ladies, you treat your husband that is not leading well as you would someone that you're trying to share Christ with by being an example. In fact, we do this all the time. We treat family and strangers that we don't know, that we know don't know Jesus, better than we do those that we do know know Jesus. Because we have a testimony upkeep before others, right? The key here is that it's about the inside that counts. Paul's not saying don't wear jewelry, don't look nice. That's not what he's saying. I mean, Peter, it's not what he's saying. He's saying specifically that it's about the inside the most that counts. It's more than just looking the part, but letting God control your response to a man that's not leading his home well. By the way, what won't work, and I promise you it doesn't work, 
What won't work is yelling at him and telling him he's terrible. It won't work. It's not going to work if you have a judgmental, harsh way that you never speak to anyone else to. It's not going to work if you guilt trip him. Being a pushy, demanding woman is not going to get him to lead. And he will not understand what it is you're trying to get across if you have that approach. In fact, the truth is embittered women halt any progress a man may, may be making, trying to make in leading their home once again. Ladies, I, 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 I pause and say this because I know it's difficult sometimes to translate these things in a sermon. Because I know it's, a, it's an area that pastors try to avoid entirely. Let's not talk to these topics. Well, one of the things that I would really encourage you to do is have a gentle approach. That doesn't mean you don't speak up for yourselves. It just means your approach is concerned with what God says. If he's trying to lead spiritually, you ought to submit to his leadership and support his decision even if at times you may disagree. You see, the truth is when we break our covenant before God in marriage, we are essentially severing what he has joined together. And no, it doesn't have to be divorced to be that way. People are married but truly separate in churches today. Some are married yet living apart. It's easy for us to judge the priests and what they did wrong when the church has not done a good job in exemplifying the gospel in their own home. The gospel, the picture of Jesus who loves his bride is what we ought to demonstrate in our Christian homes. If only our marriages took God's word seriously and the hurt that we cause one another we repented of and renewed the call for men to sacrificially love and connect with their wives. And for wives to respect and support their husbands. It's very hard when those are not in sync. And realize that many times our response is predicated on what the other person's been doing. And the hardest thing to do is go against what we would like to say or do and go with what God's word says. So in closing, there's a question to all of us. Have I betrayed my God? Have I betrayed my God? Believer, realize that God takes seriously how you deal with those around you. So much so that the marriage covenant matters very much to him. Have you been trying to serve God all the while the home is not intact? It's good that you're trying to serve God in other areas. It's commendable. But don't neglect the home. Realize that if you're a follower of Jesus, your comparison is not with others. Listen, the goal of this text is not for you to go, I'm doing better than so-and-so in the church. That's not the goal. The goal should be, God, how have I betrayed you in this area in my life? 
What do I need to repent of? What do I need to change in my home? The standard is God's word. The word you and I claim to follow. You see, the truth is God loves his own and is faithful to them. He wants you and I to be loyal to him. The life that he offers us is so much better than any life we would dream for ourselves on this earth. Maybe you've not had this relationship with God. Maybe this is the God that you oppose. You're watching this online and wondering, that has nothing to do with me, I don't care. That's for you Christians, what you think. There's no greater love than the love of the Father in sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf. If you don't know Christ, you don't have hope. He's worth living for. The Savior who died so that you and I may live. Maybe the struggle to remain faithful to God is the feeling of being betrayed by others. Maybe you're struggling because others have betrayed your trust, and that's carried over into your trust of God. Can I encourage you, as the hymn once said, to take it to the Lord in prayer? Do thy friends despise, forsake thee. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. You see, believer, take loyalty to God seriously. So much that it puts the other things to rest in order of priority. God is my number one priority and he should be my number one priority. That's how we ought to live. A lot of the Christian life is being alert and aware of what is going on. So much so that you're not just alert and aware of what's going on all around you, you're aware and alert of what's going on inside. What is God convicting you over? What is God asking you to see in your own heart? In closing, Oswald Chambers says, beware of anything that competes with your loyalty to Jesus Christ. (laughs) 